0: film listeners, I'm Josh Wall, and frankly, I love movies. Welcome to my podcast where I dissect films with fellow film enthusiasts and figure out why we love the medium so much. Today is November 17th, and I will be giving you guys another diary entry, the 10th diary entry in my film-watching journey. I'm going to be covering every movie that I watched and logged on Letterboxd from November 1st Through the 15th, a very quick turnaround rate. Um, So before we get to the diary entry, as always, if you guys like the show, please make sure to like, comment, subscribe, and leave a rating on your favorite podcasting platform of choice. You can also follow the show on social media, Frankly I Love Movies, on Instagram and Facebook, at frankly underscore podcast on Twitter, and of course you can follow me on Letterboxd at BigWalls21 for all recent movie reviews. And finally, this coming Tuesday, I will have a brand new standalone episode for you guys. Uh, My good buddy and film favorite, Matt Simmons, will be on to talk about Bicycle Thieves, the Italian neorealist classic. We had a really great conversation. I can't wait to get that out to you guys. But for now, let's get on to the diary entry. Mostly positive stuff here. I watched a lot of really great uh, movies. I watched eight movies and... Honestly, I had like a really positive, like mostly enjoyable um, 15 days of watching movies. So to start off, I uh, decided to go to on on November 1st, I uh, went to visit a friend of mine uh, and it was our movie night and we landed on A Few Good Men, Rob Reiner's and Aaron Sorkin's uh, courtroom drama all about two marines who accidentally killed another Marine and the trial that ensues. it stars Tom Cruise, Jack Nicholson, Demi Moore, Kevin Bacon, Kevin Pollock, and a whole slew of that guys. like this, I mean, it's one of the best movies ever made. It's a, an incredible journey. Um, you know, we haven't talked about Sorkin on this show in a standalone form yet, but we will very soon, I promise you that. but this is one of the most quotable movies ever. It's so entertaining. The dialogue is just so rich. I mean, it is kind of the star of the show is the screenplay, but all the performances are really great. You know, this is probably Tom Cruise at his best. I say it's probably like this and Born on the Fourth of July in my mind. Nicholson gives in an awesome supporting performance. And Demi Moore also like has always really impressed me in this movie. I don't know why she gets a lot of hate. Um, I think she's really good. Could the role have been filled by better movie stars at the time? Yes, probably, but it doesn't matter because that argument, I think, is a little tiresome. So I am totally fine with Demi Moore. I think she's really great. Um, and my friend really enjoyed it, too. It was his first time watching it, and uh, his biggest takeaway, though, was uh, he said he really liked it, but that um, you know he has read a lot on uh, the political state of Cuba throughout the years, and he said that in the 90s, Uh, It wasn't as, you know, defensive in, you know, military conflict as this movie may uh, lead you to believe. You know, Nicholson has this kind of fixation on being in the business of saving lives and how dangerous it is to be at Guantanamo Bay during this time. And he said that, like, you know, Cuba in the 90s didn't really warrant that character trait, but he still thought it was great. And it was just an interesting little uh, detail. It doesn't, you know, downgrade the movie for me. It's just kind of funny. Again, you know, the, the '90s militarism, you know, fear of the unknown, you know, definitely comes through. Um, but it's still one of the best movies ever. I love it so much. It's a five star. It's absolutely alike. like. We'll talk about it on this show at one point. Uh, you know, you know, Sorkin is a hero of mine. His dialogue just works for me. You know, this movie just has. So many wonderful scenes. Uh, it's it's just so great. It's it's an amazing 90s movie. Uh, so yeah, A Few Good Men. Fantastic. A couple days later, on November 4th, I watched Shaun of the Dead. You may remember a few diary entries ago I talked about The World's End when I wanted to watch Shaun of the Dead but I couldn't find it anywhere. And it is now on Hulu thanks to the ever-changing system that movies go through on streaming services. I was very excited to rewatch this movie, you know, kind of keeping in the spooky season a little bit further past the holiday. And I hadn't seen this movie since I was 10. I remember seeing it when I was on vacation uh in uh, in New Jersey. I can't remember where in New Jersey, but that doesn't matter. Um but it was on TV and I remember watching it and thinking it was really funny. Uh and I hadn't seen it since then, but I had very good memories of it and i i actually remembered a fair amount of what happens in the story um from that initial viewing and honestly this movie's aged like fantastically it's so much fun it's got the edgar wright style you know it's really funny it it really is just a movie about how uh boring life really is even during a zombie apocalypse you know edgar wright's really great parallel storytelling and um ingenious use of you know setup and payoff and callbacks. You know, the, the the first act of the movie is taking you through one like normal day and then the rest of the movie is basically taking you through the same steps of that day, just with the outline of a zombie apocalypse, you know, just kind of showing the mundanity of life and how repetitive everything is. And it was it was it's a really well told story. The one thing I will say that has aged horribly uh, is uh, the fact that Nick Frost does say the N word at one point in this movie? Uh, I was flabbergasted by it. You know, there's a scene where Simon Pegg goes to pick up his girlfriend, uh, whose whose name escapes me. He's run; they're running out of the the apartment complex where she lives, and Nick Frost like is driving a Cadillac and like whips it, and then gets out and says, "Sup, my Nathans." and it's just like oh no uh it like really jumped out at me it was it's not it's not great uh to say the least (laughs) um but uh but other than that I think this movie is really great it's not my favorite of the Cornettle Trilogy I, I know a lot of people go to bat for it um more than I probably would I still think Hot Fuzz and Scott Pilgrim are better but I think this and The World's End are are pretty even in my mind in terms of quality storytelling act like every pretty much every technical and um, artistic point I think this and uh The World's End are equal so I gave it the same grade I gave it four stars I gave it the like and yeah it's just it's a wonderful movie and it's uh it's so much fun and it's really great to see you know Edgar Wright's style and how it's stayed around for so long I mean I think that it's just interesting that the Cornetto trilogy itself, it starts in 2004 and then in 2007 is hot fuzz. And then the, the the world's end is like five years later, six years later, something like that. Like that's just an insane, an insane gap there. Um, but it's a great trilogy. It's, it's really fun. And, you know, I'm a big fan of Edgar Wright style and all his, you know, rogues gallery of actors. Um, And it uh, it makes me wish that Last Night in Soho was better, you know. I I don't. uh, I just thought that movie was not successful at all, unfortunately. And this this is a you know prime example of this is a good kind of entry point for Edgar Wright. I think if you're gonna watch, um, if you're getting into his films, watch this one first. So it's four stars. I gave it the like. So much fun, and you know, just great to keep the spooky season alive for a little bit while longer. On November sixth. I started a little Cohen Brothers binge um, that I'm still uh, going on here. Uh, I'm working on a short film right now, and uh, you know I'm very inspired by the Cohen Brothers in my um, in my in my filmmaking. But so is my buddy Kevin, who we're working on a project right now. And uh, the Cohens are like his favorite. And I realized that there were a lot of their earlier works that I hadn't seen. I mentioned a few months ago. I'd watched *Blood Simple* for the first time, and he lent me. Barton Fink which I had also never seen from 1991 their palm door winning film all about John Turturro who plays the titular Fink trying to write a screenplay and basically his whole world kind of going crazy around him I'd heard a lot about this movie I heard how about how weird it was how there's a lot of allegories to um, or a lot of theories postulating that It's about the rise of fascism, and you know, it's obviously about writer's block, but I didn't really know what to expect going in, what the craziness was, what the main story, like I had seen one of the earlier scenes when Barton Fink shows up to the hotel, not anything beyond that, so I was still kind of going in blind, and my god, this movie's fantastic. (laughs) I loved it, I loved how weird it was, it's so totally Cohen's. it's like the perfect you know 90s independent storm essentially you know it's there's a lot of charlie kaufman influence you know there's even you know some lynchian surrealism and you know the, the cohen's just basically throwing 100 and you know i i think that it, it i have this theory that every director has to have their movie about writing it's kind of 50 50 on the amount of times that it like, you know, succeeds and when it doesn't. So I think, uh, you know, this is kind of the best or one of the better examples of writer's block and with a lot of, you know, allegory and inspiration and the outer worldly effects of creating. And it's just so well done. I mean, the dialogue is so great. The visual storytelling, like there's so much confidence behind the camera there. It's so in sync with the dialogue on top of there just being so much craziness that happens in the end. I mean, the performances also, you know, John Turturro, you know, I, 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 who doesn't love him? He's fantastic in this movie doing a bit more of a maybe not subdued, but a different a different take on his character from Secret Window But the the standout performance for me uh, was Michael Lerner, who is just so perfect and uses up every single amount of screen time perfectly. He's insane, you know, and but I think it warrants in this movie the way he plays this head of the studio. He was nominated for an Oscar for this role um, the year that Jack Palance won for City Slickers. And I will defend that performance. I do like Jack Palance and City Slickers, honestly, quite a lot, so I'm not complaining and the fact that the Oscars kind of went like a whole like almost 180 for those types of performances, but uh, it would have been so cool to see Michael Lerner win this. You know, it's such a Cohen character, but also isn't and, you know, has a lot to say about the studio system and just the... Hollywood in, in general not just becoming I mean, this movie takes place in 1941 I believe so it's not just about the early um, years of cinema it is it was still commenting on the how hierarchical it was and how luring you know that the system was and so Lerner just kind of captures that perfectly so it would have been cool I understand why he didn't win uh, I haven't seen any of the other performances in the category, but. Um, yeah, he's great, and obviously, you know, John Goodman in a um, in a Coen Brothers movie is obviously a match made in heaven, and he has a lot of time with Totoro. You could see their differences in character and how they interact with one another and their views on the world, but also what they find enjoyable in each other, and you know, information that comes to light later in the film that really affects their relationship. You know, gives the audience a lot to relish in as opposed to it just being, you know, two people in a room talking, which a lot of this movie is, and I, you know, tend to enjoy movies like that, but, um, you know, the, the characters are so rich that it gives you something else to chew on. And, of course, you know, there's a lot of ways to interpret the film as a whole, but in particularly the ending, so it's, um, it's something that I don't fully think I can articulate what it means. I have theories and I have thoughts. But I don't have full on like a thesis about this movie, which means I'll have to go back and rewatch it, which I know I will. So Barton Fink, I gave four and a half stars. I gave it the like. It's really great. Um, I have been really enjoying this Cohen binge that I've gone on starting with this movie and just it's confirmed, you know, my love for them and what makes them great, especially since I haven't been the biggest fan of their some of their more recent work. Almost 10 years since they had a movie that really hit me with Inside Llewyn Davis, and so it's been. It's nice to go back and fill the gaps into their earlier films that a lot of people really love and that really sing for me. And I got I got a couple more of those throughout this diary entry. So let's keep going. Two days later, on November 8th, I decided to settle in for a documentary. I was having a rough mental health day, and so I wanted something. A little bit lighter, something I was at least somewhat familiar with. So I watched the documentary of The Kid Stays in the Picture, which is Robert Evans's um, autobiography that was turned into a documentary and which he narrates all about his time working within Hollywood as the head of production for Paramount and as a, and as a producer, you know, creating such films as, or helping create such films as uh, Love Story, Rosemary's Baby, The Godfather movies, Chinatown. I read the book last year. And I think it's one of the best movie, uh, books about Hollywood and about, you know, movie making. It's so fascinating. And uh, that's the main draw of the documentary for me, you know, that uh, I got to hear, you know, some of these iconic stories again. It's told in this interesting style of Evans is the one that narrates it. And there's archival footage and pictures. I, uh, I enjoyed this movie. You know, I, I gave it three and a half stars. I think that, you know, again, the main draw of it is to hear the stories that Robert Evans tells. Again, he's such an interesting figure and has such a distinct voice that um, I was happy to be back in that world. And, you know, movies about making movies, as I you know kind of just mentioned with Barton Fink, I do really like those. And, you know, this being a documentary and just set in the world of Hollywood and getting, you know, uh, the business side of things done. You know, it just kind of confirmed to me that I do really want to make movies, even though, you know, a lot of the figures in this documentary are, were pretty unhinged. Um, but f- I will say, like, the biggest drawback for me is that I enjoyed the book more. I mean, that itself is not a negative, but I felt that the the stories that were told in the movie were just better told in the book because there wasn't, like, a time restriction. And so the stories in the book on for a lot longer. There's also a lot of stories that are left out of the of the movie. That necessarily, you know, you can. there's so many insane stories in this book, you know, because Robert Evans is someone who, you know, take everything he says with a grain of salt. You know, it's never, you know, Robert Evans has said there are three sides to every story, your side, my side, and the truth, and no one is lying. You know, so kind of being upfront about how, you know, fast and loose he plays with, um, you know, the way that he remembers history. But that doesn't take away from the fact that he's just an insanely fascinating figure and, you know, someone who was at the heart of New Hollywood and, you know, or several generations of Hollywood and has, you know, a lot of experience in that world. And it's so fascinating to kind of just, you know, relish in his mind for an hour and a half. This documentary is very short, you know, it's uh, like I said, it's just an hour and a half. Uh, and the the book the version that I read was like you know 400 pages so it was um so there's a lot more in the book so I I would highly recommend the book more than the movie and I like this movie don't get me wrong like I said three and a half stars um but it honestly just made me want to reread the book and I love the book so so much so I, I highly recommend reading the book um but the movie's good really no sweeping negative thoughts on the film like I said three and a half stars it's a good movie because of that, though, uh, I wanted to finally check off my list and kind of end the spooky season watch that I had. And I know it's you know this is very late in the game, but um, since it kind of pertained to "Kid Stays in the Picture," I decided to watch "Rosemary's Baby" next. I had never seen it, and the documentary, uh, you know, mentions a lot about Mia Farrow and you know her relationship with Frank Sinatra at the time, and you know getting Roman Polanski to direct the movie. Um, So I I figured, you know what, this is a perfect kind of double feature, you know, segue into checking this off my list. Um, So the film is from 1968. It stars Mia Farrow and John Cassavetes about uh, a couple living in New York who are uh, who become pregnant and Mia Farrow uh, is convinced that there's a plot against uh, against her with like surrounding neighbors and you know it's it's one of you know it's always on some of the list of the greatest films ever made and it's considered a classic and one of the scariest movies ever and yeah it's tremendous it's a it's a phenomenal film you know it's I always feel the need you know to mention you know with when talking about Polanski's work you know he obviously you know is a monster for what he did and uh you know I'm I'm not going to you know, tell you stuff that you don't already know about Roman Polanski and how complicated that situation is. But uh, this movie's terrific, you know, and uh, I, I can't, I can't deny that it's, it's a really, really great movie that sung for me. You know, my only issue is that the pacing is a little wonky. You know, the movie's a little long. It's like two hours and seventeen minutes or something like that. Um, so it is a bit of an endurance test of a movie. But I love that. The performances are great. How Mia Farrow was not nominated for an Oscar, uh, like, is insane to me. It's probably the best performance of her career. Um, I've seen her, you know, in some Woody Allen movies, and I've seen her in the Great Gadsby movie from the seventies. Um, but this is top notch acting. She's so great. John Cassavetes is really good. Ruth uh, Ruth Gordon, who plays her neighbor, won an Oscar for this movie. And Polanski directs it, you know, he's got all the standard, like, he's, he loves some handheld cam, there's a lot of franticness to the um, to the nightmare sections of the movie, and it feels very modern in that sense, and the way that the clues are laid out um, to kind of uncover the conspiracy that's going on uh, is so fun, and it makes the movie so much more of a puzzle than just your average haunting, kind of Stepford Wives-type movie, and... I was just entranced by this movie. I was just so fascinated by where I was gonna go and how things were gonna escalate when the shit hits the fan, it like, you know, it hits, and there's a lot of really bizarre imagery and you know it's it's filmed just so well. I heard Bill Simmons once say he thought this movie was really dated, and I was just I was baffled by that because it's timeless. Like I honestly think it's timeless and everything that happens in this movie and the way that it's told and the, the performances and the look of it and the, the shot choices. The, it all just like sings, you know, like almost like 55 years later. So I, um, I just, I really loved this movie and I was so happy to cross off a list. Four and a half stars, gave it the like. Great, great movie. My Coen Brothers binge continued with crossing another movie off of their list that I'd never seen with Raising Arizona. This is their second film. This is their follow-up to Blood Simple from 1987 starring Nicolas Cage, Holly Hunter, and John Goodman. Uh, Nicolas Cage plays this kind of wily coyote type convicted felon who falls in love with Holly Hunter who's a police officer and they uh, go on an adventure of kidnapping a uh, a baby from this uh, famous rich couple who had just had five children and it in, like hijinks ensue. It's incredibly goofy. It's so bizarre. It's so fast-paced, and it's perfect. This movie, I have no flaws with it. It is. It is so perfectly executed. The first 20 minutes of this movie tell you everything you need to know. The amount of setup and uh, backstory and exposition that you get, mixed with the incredible visual style and like moving so fast through so much information spanning several years. To get you up to the present when the title comes in, it's brilliant. It's so fast paced and it's so insane. It literally, I, you know, Nicholas Cage had, plays this kind of wily e. coyote like character. This movie literally is like an episode of Looney Tunes in a lot of in a lot of ways. Like the most bonkers shit. There is a car chase that happens in this movie through the suburbs with this like yodeling score, and it's unbelievable. Like you can really see. Why Bill Hader loves this movie and finds a lot of inspiration in it for Barry. He's also mentioned, you know, Cohen's are some of his favorite filmmakers and he loves Blood Simple and No Country. But this movie just doesn't stop. Like it just goes and goes and goes and uses every single second to its advantage. The performances, like top five best nicholas Cage performances, honestly, like he's terrific in this movie. Holly Hunter is always a delight. She's always been one of my favorites and you know, I love her accent and the sound of her voice and her presence like she brings this controlling confidence but just the right amount of quirkiness too to really mesh well with Nicolas Cage and you really feel that they're a couple that love each other and that want what's best for this child that is obviously not theirs. And it just all culminates in uh a fantastic finale that is really heartfelt and again just incredibly well written you know the cohen's just relishing in their love of dialects and syntax and um but it also again just looks visually it's incredibly exciting um i i loved it i have, I have no flaws of this movie it is a perfect five star given it the like kind of film it's just so energetic i i'm so glad to have crossed this off the list and i can't wait to watch it again all right, two more films to talk about. The next day on November fourteenth, I went back to the theater. Uh, I, there hasn't really been a whole lot at my Regal that has really grabbed my attention. You know, a lot of the festival-like Oscar movies are starting to come out more, but not around me, uh, or at least close by me at my local theater. So I'm uh, I'm planning to you know travel a little bit to go see some films later in the week. Um, but I I needed some good vibes. And I wanted something positive, so I went with Ticket to Paradise. This is the most recent rom-com uh, with Julia Roberts and George Clooney. All about a divorced couple who travels to the island of Bali to stop their daughter, played by uh, Caitlin Deaver, um, from marrying someone she just met, and then thereby making the same mistake that they made, you know, 25 years before. This movie does not reinvent the wheel. It's not groundbreaking um it's not the best rom-com that you'll ever see but i was looking for good vibes and the best place honestly to find them is in two beautiful wonderful stars having the time of their life in beautiful places and this movie delivers on that and so because of that i had a great time i gave this movie 3 stars it definitely could have been funnier not all of the humor really works you know a lot of the humor in the first you know, 30 minutes of the movie before the movie really starts to get going is just Julia Roberts and George Clooney being like, I hate you, you know, you suck, you know, you're wrong about this, you're wrong about that. And, you know, it's it's a lot and it's kind of the same punchline like over and over again. But I was willing to kind of pass it by because, you know, just watching George Clooney and Julia Roberts interact with each other is a, is a gift in my mind. Um, and they are clearly having fun and they have moments of great acting, you know, they have their monologues, they have their heartfelt, you know, speeches that really sing. you know, Caitlin Deaver who's one of my favorite actresses working right now. You know, she's fantastic, even though this role is very different for her, you know, she's kind of the person who doesn't really know what's going on for large sections of the movie, which is, you know, a bit of a turn for her but yeah i mean i wasn't expecting greatness from this movie and i don't think it delivers greatness but it delivers exactly what i was looking for i wanted something fun very lighthearted, good vibes uh and that's what i got and you know i had some popcorn and i watched this movie with 10 other middle-aged to older women i was the only you know young man in the crowd and everyone in my theater seemed to be having a great time. There was this one woman as soon as the credits started to roll that she was just like ferociously clapping and just so happy about it. Um, so I'm I'm very happy for them. And uh, yeah, I think that, you know, having movies like this that are just meant to be a fun night out at the movies, you're not really meant to go into deeper analytical discussions about it. You know, the movie has flaws and questions in its plot and its pacing but definite crowd pleaser, and we uh, we need more movies like this. Honestly, like we need more more movies like this if we're gonna keep getting blockbuster after blockbuster, you know, superhero, IP, kind of fodder like that. We need something, I, I wish studios would take it, you know, more of the approach of just like, come have a fun night at the movies. Watch movie stars do their thing. And that's it. You don't have to see references. You don't have to see a continuation of a story that you, have been following. It's just watch George Clooney and Julia Roberts have fun. And it works. It works. So much so that the final movie that we're going to talk about in this diary entry goes perfectly with a um, George Clooney double feature and my Coen Brothers binge because I watched Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? This was the very first Coen Brothers movie I ever saw when I was a kid. I heard the Man of Constant Sorrow song and I was like, I got to figure out what this movie is. And at that point, the whole movie was on YouTube. Um, I think I was like 10 when I saw this movie, 10 or 11, something like that. I think it was 11 and I loved it instantly. And so much of this movie is just embedded in my brain, certain scenes. So it is a nostalgic fave. And yeah, this movie is a ton of fun. It's so great. It's so lovely. And again, all of the Coen's signature style of love of language and, you know, bonkers performances. I mean, Clooney in this movie is just phenomenal. I mean, he won the Golden Globe. Um, but he works so well with Tim Blake Nelson and John Turturro. You know, the three of their characters are all like very different, but um, work so well together because they're all just fantastic actors and movie stars. I will say that, you know, I've come to really fall in love with their earlier, almost darker tone films. You know, like Raising Arizona is a bit more lighthearted. For sure, it is a bit more comedy forward, but it is still got some dark craziness, you know, underneath it. Um, whereas O oh Brother Where Art though, I almost feel is like, for lack of a better term, family friendly, you know, um, it's a very tame movie. Yeah. I know there's a lot of, uh, there's some crazy KKK stuff in it, but for the most part, it's not super dark. You know, it's, it is a, an adventure film, you know, about these three convicts, um, who escape and go off on an adventure to find treasure. And obviously it's an adaptation of Homer's Odyssey and the soundtrack is fantastic. You know, I, I, I do enjoy bluegrass music, and, uh, you know, the T-Bone Burnett, you know, producing and music supervising, you know, does a phenomenal job, and, you know, Man of Constant Sorrow is a, is a banger, it's such a great, great song, and unbelievable that this album was as successful as it was, because it won Album of the Year at the Grammys, which is just bananas, honestly. <laughs> Like I would, but back to my uh, my initial point is that like uh you know I, this doesn't rank as high up on the favorites of the like the Coen Brothers power ranking list. I think I initially had it at like third or fourth or something, but after rewatching it, I moved it down to like six or seven maybe. Um, and I I don't I do not by any means think this is a bad movie. I, under no circumstance, please don't think it is. It's it's a four star movie. I gave it the like because it's a nostalgic fave. You know it has. A lot of sentimental value for me um I've just kind of grown to really enjoy their um earlier stuff that I haven't watched before and finding the darkness and really bizarre through lines in that that's probably also why I love I mean No Country is probably always going to be my favorite but um you know Inside Llewyn Davis is one of the most depressing movies you'll ever see um you know Blood Simple is really dark but I like that their movies when they're dark they're the darkness accentuates the comedy, um, whereas O Brother, I think, is more comedy and adventure forward. And I don't want to say like that's inherently a negative thing, but it makes it stand out among their um, films up until this point. And so it can be a bit jarring to kind of go from the insanity that is raising Arizona and the existential kind of dread with Barton Fink into this almost joyful adventure with O brother even though like i said there are still some pretty crazy stuff in it yeah it's it's a great movie it, it means a lot to me and uh it's just proves that clooney you know he did a lot for me growing up and how uh you know wonderful of a movie star he is and this is one of his best performances he is a tried and true movie star more than he is an actor not that he hasn't given great performances i mean just watch michael clayton but he is a movie star and you know he's just so great in this movie as the as the the leader of this outfit you know uh and just being you know thinking he's the smartest guy in the room and even though he's you know also as idiotic as the other two and you know the cohen's really love their storybook style so this has you know three or four different narratives going on at the same time that overlap in this span of I, I was a little confused as to how long this movie lasts. I think at one point Everett says it had been like a year since they got off the the chain, but really I felt like it was like two weeks or something like that. I don't really know. But the the movie is clearly kind of divided into chapters in a strange way and has somewhat of an episodic feel, not in the in the way that they obviously then, you know, doubled down on in things like Lou and Davis or obviously more, you know, more prominently in Buster Scruggs but you know this is following you know and it's based off of the Odyssey this epic poem that is a narrative in in and of itself and so you can see them really loving this uh, storybook kind of uh, bedtime story like structure that their other films don't follow as um, as closely so this you know stands out and kind of turns um, turns the tides a little bit for them so I like, like I said, I still love it. It's still really great. It's just not uh, as high up on my favorites as it was before. So, four stars. Gave it the like. Oh brother, where art thou? Um, definitely check it out. It's on. Uh, it's on Hulu. It's on Hulu now. If you've uh, if you've never seen it, so um, go check it out. That's it for the diary entry, guys. I hope you enjoyed uh, this coverage of all the films that I watched from November first all the way through the fifteenth. Like I said up top, if you like the show, please make sure to like, comment, subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform of choice. The show is also on social media, Frankly I Love Movies, on Instagram and Facebook, and at frankly underscore podcast on Twitter. Uh, The show is going to continue with some standalone programming on uh, this coming Tuesday. On November 22nd, two days before Thanksgiving, you can listen to Matt Simmons and myself talk about bicycle thieves it's a really great episode can't wait for you guys to hear it and uh thank you guys as always for listening you know i I do this show for you guys and i greatly appreciate your love and support throughout the years and i can't wait to get more uh, episodes out for you guys so until next time i'm josh wall and frankly i love movies